0: Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. Let's talk about a story you've probably heard before. It's a popular story, but I want to talk about it in a different way. Stick with. So my wife grew up out in the country in in an old farmhouse. In fact, her mom still lives there. It's a great place to be outside, explore. I actually love going up to, to that house just, just for that reason, just to be outside. There's like a creek that runs through my mother-in-law's uh, property. And, and there's a bike trail right next to it. There's an old railroad that they made into a, a bike trail. And so when Nicole and I were dating, uh, we'd ride that bike trail like you know 30 miles into Madison and back. It was just a, a great little spot out in the country. When Nicole was little, her and her twin sister decided to make this lemonade stand. It's a great idea. All these people coming through on their bikes, you know, passing through on a hot day. You know, there's money to be made there. Lemonade is, is a refresher. The issue is, is my wife and her twin sister are a bit conniving. Uh, they knew that bicyclists would come through thirsty, and they knew that you know who wouldn't stop for two. You know, little cute twin girls selling lemonade, and so they hatched a con. They made their lemonade. But they made it extremely sour, as sour as they could make it. And they sold the lemonade for, you know, 25 cents a cup. It was a good deal for lemonade. But knowing the bicyclists, when they took a drink, they would need some water to dilute all that sour in their mouth. And so they had water for sale, only the water was a lot more money. Just dirty little tricksters. Now, I'm not saying that my wife is the devil. But... This is how Satan works, doesn't he? Isn't this like the, the classic way temptation works? Yeah, you know, and, and we know this because we've all experienced it. Maybe experienced it this week. It's just a little taste. It's just one date. It's just one quick look. It's just a fling. It's just a drink. It's just one drag. And then pow, you end up going further and paying more. It's like that old classic line of, of sin always takes you further than you want to go and makes you pay more than you want to pay. And some of our lives have been seriously wrecked by falling for those traps, those lemonade stands, even just this past week. Some of us have been injured by our parents' lack of ability to be able to handle temptation. Uh, To add to that, we've seen high-level leaders, politicians. We've seen pastors wreck everything from failing. We've seen churches fall apart from that. But today, in a truly refreshing way, we follow a man to a lemonade stand of sorts. And unlike many of of the stories that we see, unlike the headlines we see all around us of people falling all around us, we see this guy not fall. And how he pulls this off is extremely remarkable. It speaks volumes to us. This could really change your life. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39. I really encourage you to grab a Bible. A Bible's in the chairs. page 33 in those Bibles. Otherwise, I know phones, tablets, people use the Bridge app. We have the Bible on there as well as notes. Genesis chapter 39. Uh, We're taking this summer to follow a guy named Joseph, a man who dominates the book of Genesis. God spends more pages of Genesis on this guy, more than Adam and Eve, more than Noah, more than Abraham. It's Joseph. And when God spends so much focus on one man, it means we better know this guy. It's kind of funny, I had a buddy of Mike this series on Joseph. We don't really know this guy. But like, why are we following this guy? He's like, in these last few weeks, I have, I have confronted my own sin in so many different ways, far more than I thought I, I would have confronted. And that's what it's like to follow this guy named Joseph. It is so, so good for us. So we've been slowly following Joseph's life, studying the dysfunctional family that he came from. You know, the favorite child of a, of a wealthy man. He's living in the penthouse. And then last week we saw him trade the penthouse, and he's sold into slavery by his brothers. And he ends up in Egypt, and this is where we pick things up. Whether you're a church person or not, I can almost guarantee you've probably heard this story in some form, somewhere along the line. This is a very, very popular story. Problem is, is when we talk about a very, very popular story, the challenge is, at least as a preacher, I'm like, what can we say that's new? I mean, we've heard the story so many different times what can, we, what can we say that's, that's new? And so the temptation when we hit a text like this, because we know the story, is just go, okay, well, I know the story. I'm just going to kind of check out. I'm tempted to do that. But we must remember, my, my guess is, you're not very good at handling temptation. There's some temptation that has your number that you're really struggling, whether it's a a huge temptation or, you know, just maybe what you consider a minor temptation. I don't think any of us would say, oh, yeah, I'm really good at at handling temptation. And if you're saying that, if you're thinking that, I I would say to you, you, you're not very good at handling the temptation of having an ego. (laughs) And so the reality is none of us are sitting in here going, I'm really good at temptation. So, okay, we might know this story. But this story serves as a reminder to help us with our temptation, right? It's like what uh, Paul wrote in Romans, that these, these stories are in Scripture to instruct us. And so whether this is like new information for you today or whether it's a reminder, the reality is God still wants to speak through something that you've maybe heard before and confront something that we're just not very good at. And so let's ask God to do that today. God, I thank you so much for your word. Your word is powerful. It is transformational even when it's something familiar like this, you still speak new things. And God, I thank you for that reality. And Father, I pray that right now we open up our hearts to what you have for us, that we come before you humbly, saying, speak to us. You will speak. It just has that we listen, that we tune out all distractions, and we break down all those barriers that we might have when it comes to your word and what you have for us today. May we be open books. May we be honest with ourselves about what we're struggling with, honest with you, and, uh, and, and may you do a surgery with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into Genesis chapter 39, we see Joseph wakes up in the morning from a jab to his side and a gravelly voice speaking a foreign language. He quickly sits up and, and tries to get his bearings. Where, where, where is he? The sand around him is a dead giveaway. Hell oh, yeah, Egypt. That's when Joseph's stomach sinks. His sale to slave traders was no nightmare. This is real life. Today, he wakes up chained to a slave cart in a foreign land. With tears welling up in his eyes, he sits and watches the society that will rule over him. The sights and the sounds around him are unlike anything he's ever seen. He's never been in this large of a city. The towering statues, the massive temples, the skyline of the pyramids. This is, it's fascinating, it's captivating, but it's also very intimidating. Scaffolding nearby on a nearby project casts a welcome shadow over his cart. Masses of, of, crowd, masses of people crowd the streets on their way to the markets and, and to the temples. A few little kids play a, a game of dice in, in one of the alleyways that reminds him of his brother Benjamin back home. And just as a tear falls down his dusty cheek, a muscular Egyptian man walks over to him and studies him. The man speaks to him, but Joseph sits there confused. It's a foreign language. That's when the man unties Joseph, grabs him by the arm, and leads him through the streets of this big city, and Joseph is ushered to his new home. This is where we pick it up in verse 1. It writes, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So we're introduced to a a new character, a character that plays a large role in the life and the development of Joseph. His name is Potiphar, and it says that he's an officer of Pharaoh. He's captain of the guard. Jewish historian Albert Edersheim writes that this position, officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, uh, was the chief executioner. Now let's let that sink in for a second. 17-year-old kid, just sold by his brother's, Dad thinks he's dead, he's scared out of his mind, sitting on the selling block in an intimidating powerful city, can't understand a lick of what anybody's saying to him. Then Egypt's executioner, chief execution warrior, his expertise and resume includes killing people, both on the battlefield and execution formally. What a trade to have. He's decorated mil- with military honors, His job is to terrify. He's a cold, hard brute. Imagine this guy paying money for you. Imagine his big, murderous hands grabbing your chain, speaking to you in a foreign language with a gruff voice, and leading you through the crowded streets of Egypt to the wealthy part of town. This is when Genesis reminds us that the Lord is with Joseph is constantly repeated in Joseph's narrative. In this chapter alone, get this, in this chapter alone, it's repeated seven times in some form. God was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord made him succeed. The favor of the Lord was upon him. This is repeated over and over and over. When scripture repeats something twice, you always think, okay, this is important. This is seven times. God is trying to hammer this into the reader. And for a reason. Because the life of Joseph is filled with these dramatic highs and these low lows. We've already seen a few, right? He's born to a wealthy family, that's great. Mom dies when he's seven. He's favored by dad, he gets some nice threads, doesn't have to do much work. Sold by his brothers into slavery. These dramatic highs, these dramatic lows. And this is often our life. You've experienced this, you've had these high highs, right? You've had these low points of failure. Sometimes it happens in a week. High highs, kids were great today. Low, low. Kids are monsters today. High highs, low lows. It was my week. Actually, last week, I was, I was invited to speak in, in Norway to a pastor's conference. And the original plan was to bring Ukrainian and Russian pastors together. And last minute, the Russian pastors couldn't attend because there's just too much political pressure to get out of the country. And so it's just too much of a risk. But it was a fantastic gathering. Though. I mean, talked with a couple pastors who were running projects on the, on the border of Ukraine um, and, and Russia. And we as a church were, were helping fund a lot of those uh, more um, undercover operations. And after the conference, Nicole and I, we, we, uh, so we met all these great people, hung out, had a blast. And then after the conference, Nicole and I had a couple of days where we went and we hiked a glacier in the pouring rain. It's like an unbelievable experience. Our guide took us in places that they weren't supposed to take amateurs. It was scary. It was insane. Standing on like ice bridges underneath waterfalls that are pouring over the glaciers. It's like this high, high, you know, experiencing God's church and experiencing God's creation. It's like wow, Nicole and I got in the car. Like it was out, that was unbelievable. We can't believe we got to do that. Get on the plane to come back home. I got food poisoning. So I spent the plane ride laying in a plane bathroom, just puking everywhere. And you know how, you know this, like, you know, when you're sick, you don't want to smell any sort of food. You know what that's like, right? This airline made fish on the plane. So I'm puking, smelling fish, shoving my nose in a blanket in an airplane bathroom. I felt so close to God the day before on top of a mountain on a glacier under a waterfall. Now I'm laying in a plane bathroom, wondering why he forsook me. Just in the matter of 24 hours, I mean, this is, this is life, though, right? This is life. You have these amazing moments. You get married. Yeah. Marriage is doing well. It's awesome. Kids are doing good. You're firing on all cylinders. You're on a mountain and you're feeling God's blessing and you feel God's favor and God is so good. But then you know what it's like? You get sick, or the marriage starts to crack, or the kids begin to wander, or the business begins to slow, or you get laid off. And now you don't feel God's favor. Now God's blessing seems so foreign to you. And God doesn't seem so good. And that's a natural feeling. This is why the writer keeps on hammering this away. High highs, low lows, but God is with. Don't you forget, God is right there, if not closer in the hard times. You might think, okay, Junior, that's great, but what does that have to do with temptation? Everything. See, the context here is very important. Joseph is about to face temptation, and this is often when t- temptation hits, in the low points, when you don't feel God so much on the, on, the, on the floor of a plain bathroom. This is when you're more susceptible to falling. You know, the marriage is struggling, so I'm gonna come over here. I know it's not right, but come on, look at my marriage. I, I don't, where's God anyways? Or finances aren't good, I'm exhausted by this weight, I'm not really feeling God, I'm super stressed with the kids, so I just need to blow off some steam over here, This is when temptation likes to hit. In the valleys, in the confusion, in the hurt, in the loneliness, that's when we struggle to feel God's presence, and that's when we give ourselves a pass. Well, life isn't so great, so whatever. It doesn't feel like God is around. And this is why the writer continues to repeat this line over and over and over. Because Joseph is about to head into temptation, but he's heading into temptation with this mindset right here, the right mindset. God is with me. My life sucks, but God is with me. And so right off the bat, he's in the right mindset. And too often, we're not here. We walk into temptation convinced otherwise. Finances aren't so great. Marriage isn't so great. Kids aren't so great. Where's God? kind of upset with God, kind of annoyed with God, kind of feel like God doesn't care. That's when you're a sitting duck. You're gonna get obliterated in temptation. See, we're gonna get into how to handle temptation. We're gonna get into that in just a second. But this right here, this is the pregame front work. We have to go into temptation confident. God is with me. Because it's that conviction that pushes us past the lemonade stand. So if you write in your Bibles, highlight this line right here, circle this line, and maybe even put like a little seven right here. In this chapter, seven times in some, in some form, seven times in this chapter, that's huge to this discussion. My goodness, we're not even two verses in. We have to keep on moving. Let's continue reading in verse, what are we in? We're verse two, right? Verse two, So says, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he became overseer of the house and he's put in charge of all that he had. So Potiphar's not an idiot. He just keeps on giving Joseph promotions because Joseph is a hard worker. He's not giving Joseph promotions. Verse five, from that time on, that he had made him overseer in his house and all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. Verse six, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. This is such a beautiful picture. One that should be true of us, but often isn't. Joseph decides, I'm ju- I, I don't want to be here, but I'm going to put my head down and I'm work my tail off. How often do we get sucked into griping and whining about our jobs and our bosses and our coworkers? And I can't believe they made me do that. And did you hear about this new policy? When do we get our raises? You know, we need more time off. I'm going to count my hours. I can't believe I have to stay late. How many of us spend our days crying about our workplace instead of just blessing our workplace? Joseph decides, I'm just going to keep it simple. I'm not going to play the politics. I'm not going to schmooze and kiss Potiphar's butt. He just simply decides, I'm gonna work hard and my presence is going to be a blessing in the workplace. When he has every reason to complain. I mean, Joseph isn't used to manual labor. He never had to growing up. He had the spiffy new coat. He, had, he shouldn't be a slave. He shouldn't have to put in these hours and break his back each day. But all of that is out of his control. What's in his control though is, hey, I can be a blessing. I can work hard. And I can, I can, daily I can go the extra mile. And Potiphar's house is better because Joseph is there. And that idea should cause us to just pause for a second. Is the office you work in better off because you're there? Is the team that you work on, is the school that you're part of, is the church you're involved in, is the extended family you married into, are they better because of you? Are you a blessing to have? Or are you just a wet blanket, a stubborn mule? Rarely happy to go the extra mile to show love and bless those you are around. So we've got to remember, Joseph is at a very low point in his life. He's a slave. He still chokes up thinking about his dad and his little brother. Still working through anger against his brothers. This is a low point in his life. But Genesis says, he's just a blessing to have on the team. Is that you? Verse six. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Dun dun dun. This is like the start of something brewing, isn't it? Form and appearance. So form he's toned. He's a hard worker. He's very active. He goes after things. He doesn't need a gym. His slave work is the gym. So the guy's just in shape. And appearance. He's a good-looking guy. His mom, Rachel, is beautiful. So beautiful that Joseph's dad worked 14 years just to be able to marry Joseph's mom. So I mean, just a beautiful woman. And apparently it's in the genes because her son looks good too. Unfortunately, this causes some problems because apparently there's a wannabe cougar in the house. Verse 7. And after a time, his, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. She's a very subtle lady. <laughs> when I was in second grade, the, the Christian school I went to, uh, we read this story and we were all confused you know, we were in second grade like, you know, what's going on here? My classmate, you know, I kind of asked, the, or somebody asked the question, my, my classmate, she's a teacher's pet. She said, well, a lie with me means that Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph to tell lies with her. I corrected her. I said, no, that's what adults do for fun. Like, get that weak interpretation out of here. But Mrs. Potiphar likes what she sees, right? You have a young guy. He's taking leadership around the house. He goes after things. He's good looking. He's toned. And Potiphar, on the other hand, you have to understand the whole context. Potiphar's an executioner. He's more of a cold kind of guy. So you have this, this warm guy showing leadership, and then you have a cold husband. It's like this perfect storm brewing here. And if you heard this story before, you probably have this picture in your head of Potiphar's wife, don't you? Like the way movies portray this is like some good-looking, knockout, desperate housewife. And a lot of times when I hear sermons on this, preachers don't help. Like they paint this picture of like this extremely tempting, seductive woman, like the Sophia Vagara of ancient Egypt, you know, cue Nelly and, and, and dim the lights, and I always sit there thinking, like, why are you trying to sexy up your sermon, bro? Like, you have no idea how this played out. Like, she could have looked like a potato. You have no idea if this was very seductive. But regardless of all of that, we do have to put everything into context here and understand the temptation. This is a temptation for a young guy, right? Potiphar's higher up, so Mrs. Potiphar probably carried herself well. Come from a successful house, living in that neighborhood, she probably carried her, herself well. Egyptian women during this time in this region were known for better hygiene. They just kind of had that, uh, that reputation. So she smelled nice, I guess. Joseph isn't around women as much for most of his growing up years. He didn't have a mom. So there's this piece of him that really longs for companionship of a woman. He, he misses that, that feminine touch that, that he never really grew up with. And let's just shoot straight. I don't mean to be inappropriate, but it's just true. Joseph's a guy, guy most guys like sex. It's just reality. You have this rich, powerful woman. What are the big temptations? Money, sex, power. All three of those are wrapped up in this temptation. You have a rich, powerful woman wanting sex. To add to all of this, at this point in Joseph's life, he's probably thinking, This is my only shot at intimacy. Fluent slave. He worships a God that nobody else worships. So marriage for him is likely off the table. This could be the only opportunity he has for something like this. Plus. This is he's not only. He's still trying to learn the language. He's a slave. He's thinking, like, ah, I kind of deserve something, don't I? Plus, she's my master. You know, I'll have the excuse, you know, darn it, I have to do what she says. Yet, next verse, he resists. He resists. He's living in this mindset of even though things are tough, God is still right here with me. And if God is still right here with me, well, the answer is gonna be pretty easy. If I really believe God is with me, the answer is gonna be pretty easy here. Verse eight but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything from me except you, because you're his wife. It's just so utterly brilliant. And so often we miss this when we read the story because we get so caught up in like the seductive part. We miss this part. Joseph is so brilliant here. Joseph immediately thinks about who this would hurt. This is so brilliant because we often think of who this would hurt afterwards. When we're tempted with whatever, whether it's an affair like here or gossip or losing your temper or porn, whatever the temptation, when we're tempted, all the potential victims in this are blurred out in our temptation. Our mind goes right to what we want, the substance, the body, the feeling, and it pulls us closer. And then after the passion dies down, after the high wears off, after we sober up, After we get our fill, then we realize what we just did. Then we realize who we just hurt. And somehow Joseph has trained his mind to immediately think about the potential victims. Because Joseph understands there's always victims in sin, innocent victims. And one of them is Potiphar. So he brings Potiphar into focus. I can't do that. Look, Potiphar, he trusts me. He can't betray his trust. And then, then he brings God into the equation. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. He brings up God a God that that Joseph knows very little about a God that allowed Joseph's mom to die a God that allowed Joseph to be taken from his family and made a slave in a foreign country a God that allowed so much pain in Joseph's life why Joseph would you bring God into this moment why would you declare your trust in God right here because Joseph understood something that we so often miss. Joseph's job wasn't to re-engineer circumstances. It wasn't his job to control the outcome of everything. It was simply his job to do what someone would do if they were convinced that God was with them. God's with me. I can't do that. Fantastically brilliant. Incredibly difficult. And in this, he's giving us a lesson. What do you do when you're at the lemonade stand and you're wanting just one taste? What do you do when you face temptation? And you're probably gonna face temptation this afternoon or this week. You're just gonna do it. It's part of life. What do you do when you're gonna face temptation? Number one, this is huge. Reframe the situation. This is what Joseph does. This is what he's teaching us. Reframe the situation. Reframe what's going on. Temptation always shows you a distorted picture. It's kind of like, you ever go to a a restaurant and uh, they have pictures of the food on the menu? And the pictures look good. You're like, I was gonna order that, but give me that, because the picture looks good. Right, staged well, perfect lighting, it's appetizing. And then the food comes, you're like, uh, that looks nothing like the picture you just showed me. I heard this happens with dating profiles, like online dating. You know, like the picture looks like Chris Hemsworth, but you know, Shrek just showed up and sat across from you. Like, <laughs> what's going on? I heard this gray line because uh, pictures are so deceiving that um, nobody looks as good as their social media profile picture but nobody looks as bad as their driver's license photo. We're always like somewhere in between is really the reality because pictures are deceiving. And this is how temptation works. Temptation always gives you a picture. If you could just get that high, calm your nerves, be fine. If you could just have that fun little side release, you know, over and done, get it out of your system, no harm, no foul. If you could just let them have it, you could lose your temper, say what needs to be said, Let them see how angry they are. You teach them a lesson. They'll change, and you'll be good. You don't do it again. If I could just make that one purchase and feel better, I'll be done. No more. If I could just have some more chips. always offers you this picture. Joseph is given this picture. Female companionship, a release, fun little fling. Everything else is blurred. And Joseph immediately reframes the whole situation. Okay, I see you, Mrs. Potiphar but I'm also going to bring Mr. Potiphar into focus. I'm also going to bring God into focus because I know he's right here with me. And in light of the full picture, in light of Mr. Potiphar, in light of God, I'm not going to do this. Temptation is always a distorted picture. If you want to strip temptation of its power, reframe the whole situation. Apparently, Mrs. Potiphar doesn't like hearing no, so the story continues. As she spoke to Joseph, look at this, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her. It's not even a second. Just lay out, lie beside. Or to be with her. If you write in your Bibles, underline that last part. Or to be with her. After this, he does what he can to steer clear. He avoids the triggers. I can't be around her. I don't want to be in the position where it's just, it's going to be harder to say no next time. So I'm not even going to put myself in that position. He's giving us a second lesson. You want to overcome temptation? Avoid your triggers. So this week, you run into temptation, because you have that temptation. You have that thing that keeps on calling you. You Reframe the situation, bring other things into focus, and then avoid your triggers. Triggers is often lingo used for addicts, right? So it's like an alcoholic uh, shouldn't go into the bar because the bar is a trigger. Just being there around those people, the sights, the smells, all of that, it's just going to, those are triggers to weaken you. And so part of the recovery process, if you were to get into recovery, Um, part of that process is, okay, I have to identify all of my triggers. With our recovery program that we have here at church, um, there's rooms, I know this sounds crazy, but there's rooms that we don't use because they're too dimly lit. So some guys have said, you know, this, this, the lighting in here just kind of like reminds me, it's a little too similar to the CD bars that I used to, that I used to go into. And so we just avoid that trigger. Okay, well, that room is off limits. We're not going to trigger that. Certain friends or old dealers, you know, if I'm around them, it's just too easy to buy, so I'm going to avoid that trigger. I'm going to delete that contact in my phone. Some guys take the long way home after work. I I don't want to drive by Binnings. I don't want to drive by that strip club because it's just a trigger, so I'm going to take the long way home. This is not just for addicts. This is for all of us. It's kind of too bad that we've reserved this lingo for, for like recovery programs. It should be for all of us because you have a trigger. You're a sinner. I have a trigger, because I'm a sinner. We all have triggers. And typically, this is where it's difficult. This is why we don't want to talk about this, is usually the triggers are things we really enjoy that seem harmless. It's a show we like. But the show desensitizes us to the reality of sin. It's overtly sexual, and it awakens an appetite in us that we don't want awakened. And so hours later when we fall, often if you're really good at, at tracking this, you can track it all the way back to, okay, well, I track it all the way back, it really started by watching the show that awoke in an appetite, and after a while, I needed to do something with that appetite, and that's when I went online and did whatever. If you really think about it, you can trace that fall back to your triggers. The show was a precursor that led to the falling. It's not just shows, though. It's music, you know? It's just raunchy music, and it triggers attitudes. Or there's old friends. Anytime you're with them, there's just temptation. Avoid your triggers. This is what Joseph does. I'm gonna reframe The situation, I'm going to bring Potiphar into focus. I'm going to bring God into focus. I don't want to be around her, so I'm going to avoid my triggers because it's so hard to say no. See, the fight, and this is so huge, the fight against temptation, your temptation, always begins before you think it does. Your fight always begins before you think it does. The fight for temptation really began on the menu screen of your TV when you chose what show you are going to watch. That's when the fight began. Not when the appetite was awoken. It's on the menu screen of your TV. The fight really began when you decided you were going to go on the internet when nobody was home. You know you can't handle it. It's a trigger, but you were just okay with the trigger. The fight really began when you said yes to hanging out. Not when your friends offered you that. It's really when you said yes to hanging out. The you have triggered. Verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So this is interesting because most people don't do that. He doesn't stick around, you know, enjoy the advances. I'm kind of lonely. This is kind of fun. This is kind of playful. I'm going to enjoy the touches. I'm going to enjoy what she does with me because it kind of makes me feel better about myself. I kind of enjoy being flirty. He doesn't do any of that. And this is how temptation works. I hear this all the time. You know, like, junior, I'm not going to have, like, you know, I, I know i got this thing going on at work, I kind was of like, a little fling. I'm not going to have sex with her, though. Like, the, the flirting is just fun. You know, my wife isn't as playful anymore. Or my husband's not as playful anymore. So this is just kind of a fun little thing. It's not going to go anywhere. It's nothing. It's harmless. It's absolutely not harmless. You want to beat temptation? Joseph is teaching us, well, then flee. Don't stick around and flirt. Flee, don't flirt. Don't stick around. Don't enjoy it. Flee. Temptation always banks on you flirting a bit. And I'm not just talking about physical relationships. Any temptation you have, whether you drink too much, whether it's drugs, whether it's eating, temptation always banks on you being okay with flirting, you being okay with your trigger. And the more you lean into flirting the more you move your conscience. Think about it this way. Let's imagine this is our conscience right here. God is so, I mean, he's God. He's just so brilliant. But he gives us a conscience. And the conscience is there because I don't want to fall over this edge. And so God says, okay, well, so you don't want to fall over the edge. And so you don't want to fall. I'm going to put your conscience right here. So let's, let's, stay, let's stick with what Joseph's doing here. Let's stick with the, the affair analogy. Falling off the edge would be having the affair, but God sticks our conscience right here. And this is how temptation works. Often, you know, we meet this person. It's an inappropriate relationship. It's something you know you shouldn't have. And so we bump up against our conscience. It's a little, a little flirting, you know, whatever. A little flirting. You're uh, going to go out to dinner. Uh, you know, we're going to go out after work. And you, I know I shouldn't go out with her after work, but like whatever. We're not going to like do anything. We're just, we're just going to go out you know, after work. We're going to hang out. We're going to get a, you know, get a few drinks, you know, whatever. And, and all of a sudden, you know, a month later, you're like, this is kind of weird. Like I'm super, super comfortable around her or I'm super, super comfortable around him. And like a couple months ago, I would have never been okay with where I'm at. but Like for some reason, I'm okay with that. Well, it's because we keep on pushing our conscience a little bit, pushing our conscience a little bit, pushing our conscience a little bit. so now okay. Well, now I'm going to go over to her house like whatever. We're just going over to the house. I'm not going to do anything. But now I'm in her house and now I'm in her house at night. And, I, and then suddenly, eventually the fall. Affairs, sin in general, but affairs in this context, it's never like you meet someone, hey, do you want to have sex? Absolutely, I'm going to jump off the edge. It's never like that. It's always the slow moving of the conscience, bumping into the conscience. It's really conditioning your conscience to be okay with what you shouldn't be okay with until the fall happens. And this is the story of so many people. The fall didn't go from like zero to 100 in one second. It was a slow moving of your conscience over time. And some of you are right there. You haven't gotten to the fall yet, but some of you, you know this. You've just been bumping up against your conscience and now you're okay with what you weren't okay with a year ago. This is the story of so many people. The drug relapse didn't happen because you accidentally found a conscience. I'm hanging out with these people I know I shouldn't hang out with. We're in places I know I shouldn't be. And now whatever, it's just a heck of a lot easier to say yes because I've pushed my conscience so far we move our conscience slowly but surely until it happens. Joseph knew how this worked, so he wouldn't even be around her. Oh, well, I'm sure. You think about it. I'm sure Mrs. Potiphar poked fun at him all the time. Whoa, you can't even be around me anymore? Can you be That's yeah, right. Anytime that you respect your conscience, you're always going to get those words. Oh, You can't even be around. You're not even going to go out. What, what? And Joseph said, I'm not going to apologize for my boundaries. I'm going to set my boundaries. I'm going to respect my conscience, and I'm not going to apologize for it. And he doesn't fall. Oh, he'll get punished for it. We'll unpack that next week. That's huge next week. But Joseph doesn't fall. And I can't help but go back to that phrase that is repeated so often in this text. The Lord is a Joseph. The Lord is a Joseph. Seven times in this short chapter. God is a Joseph. God is a Joseph. God is a Joseph. Joseph. Why repeat such an obvious statement? Because this is more than just a statement of fact. This is littered throughout the narrative because Joseph lived with this abiding certainty. God is with me. God is with me so I can work hard. God is with me so I can can do my slave job. God is with me so I'm gonna say no to the advances of a woman. Joseph had this abiding certainty because his eyes were locked on his creator. And this gives us the last but maybe the most powerful take home. You wanna overcome temptation? Look to the master. You could boil everything down to this point right here joseph is pure living proof if your eyes are locked on your master temptation loses its power if your eyes are locked on your provider whatever temptation offers you you know it's a cheap substitute because my eyes are locked on my provider so anything provided by temptation it doesn't matter when i think about this you know i've used this before but i always think of my dog when i think of temptation my dog's name is luna you think with a house full of girls, I get a boy dog, but no. Luna's a good dog. Actually, Luna's a Luna's a great dog. She's got this quirk though. She's uh, so she we rescued her. She's a rescue, and when we got her, um, the vet had told us. She said, "Well, because of you know the age that you got the dog and whatnot, um, and her getting fixed at a certain time, um, she's going to regard your children as her puppies." Which at first, like, oh, that's so anyone, but like, if you were to come over to our house. Um, she, and she would never be aggressive, but she would always try to like hang out between you and the kids. And if you get close to the kids, she'll just get like this uncomfortable growl going. And it's like she, oh, last Sunday, uh, the kids are playing on the floor. Luna's sitting next to me on the couch and she hears someone walk by on the sidewalk in front of our house. And so she looked but then like five seconds later, she's like, you know, back at looking at the person and then growling. Which is like so many of us, right? You know, like we don't want to. We, we want to stay away from that website. We want to stop talking negative. We want to stop losing our temper. But like after a few moments, like uh, we're back at it. And so I see her, you know, looking at the sidewalk growling and then cowering in shame and looking away, but then looking at the sidewalk and growling and cowering in shame because, you know, she can't, she can't handle it. So what I do is I snap my fingers and I say, look at me. She like stops. She just stares at me. And she won't growl if she's looking at me because she trusts me. If that person's bad, she knows that I'm going to take care of it. If she looks at me, she knows that everything's going to be okay. It's the same thing with us. It's the same thing with our master. That's why this chapter is littered with God is with Joseph, God is with Joseph, God is with Joseph. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Temptation will always have your number if you're not looking at your master. I think so many of us are trying to will ourselves into holiness. It's like will ourselves into staying away from temptation. But you're always going to take temptation's offer if you're not looking at your provider. This is why Scripture says we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The battle with temptation isn't so much in like the blatant trenches of sin. The real battle when it comes to temptation is keeping your eyes locked on your master. Because it's in him we realize, man, I have all that I need. I have all that I need. So I'm going to be okay. This is Joseph. But how many of us were just not there? We're getting obliterated when it comes to temptation. And the real reason is is we're just, we're not pursuing the one we're supposed to pursue. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings.